Now let me draw your attention to a passage in the Gospel of Luke, just like we have been doing now for the last oh, two or three Sundays. It'll be Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And this is a familiar passage to you, or at least it should be. And uh, it's one of those passages that has uh, even kind of developed a, I, I don't know, it's become proverbial as far as just the title of it. Jesus is on his final leg in his journey. He's heading toward Jerusalem. And he sent out a mission team. He, uh, his, they came back. He talked to them. Now he was, we find him evidently with a crowd of people, and he's teaching them. The reason we say that is because there was someone that asked him a question, and that person stood up to do so. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, uh, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. <clears throat> you know, in, in church life, we get to meet a lot of different people. And some of them, they just being able to meet them and be around them, it was a blessing. There's some people that, let's be honest, they are less than pleasant, and you almost want to thank God whenever you see their taillights, you know. And, uh, but, you know, there was, a, there was a family in Mount Enterprise, or lived outside of Mount Enterprise a couple of miles. These were poor folks. They were good folks, just good, God-fearing people, but they didn't have much. And the house that they lived in was just falling apart. And someone was able to find a house that could be moved out there and it needed to be put together and fixed up and repainted. And so people from the church, they came and worked out there for I don't know how many weekends and they got it fixed up and it was looking spiffy. And that poor couple, they were so happy. They were so delighted about it. They wanted everybody to come and see it. And it was really pretty. It was really nice. The old man didn't live too much longer after that. But you know something, whenever you get to help people like that, they kind of make your day and they kind of give you a little bit of a lift and you're thankful that you got to have a part in it. Whenever I was a pastor in Orange, there was a young man named Mark. 
And he would show up. I mean, and he always knew when to show up. You know, like at a, a church like this, where you have certain times when you have services. If there is something and you see a bunch of cars out there in the parking lot, and it's after the time for the services to be over, well after the time, you realize that it's a bunch of Baptists stuffing their faces in the fellowship hall. Well, this young man named Mark, like I said, he was dirty, nasty, and he was what I call drug demented. I mean, he had fried, I think, the last brain cell that he had. He lived in the neighborhood of the church, and he would you'd see him going up and down the street on his bicycle, and whenever he saw a lot of cars out in front of McDonald Memorial Baptist Church in Orange, he was turning in, and he'd go in there, and he'd come in, and he'd get him a plate, and he'd fill it up, and he'd sit down at the table and gobble it up. He was just as happy as a clam, and he seemed to be grateful for every bite that we ever fed him. And in a way, we kind of liked having him there. I kind of miss seeing people like Mark. But sometimes we find another group of people. The first time that we met them, it was in the aftermath of Hurricane Rita. There at, uh, at the First Baptist Church in Mount Enterprise, we were not prepared to take anybody in, to tell you the truth. The county was not expecting as many people to show up. I mean, people came into Mount Enterprise by the hundreds. They expected the same. The county didn't expect to have that much in the whole county, but we had them. Landmark Baptist Church was set up to take them in. They were a Red Cross shelter, but they filled up and they started herding them in our way. We ended up with about 52 people, and we told them we don't have really a place for you to sleep except a cold, hard floor. Uh, we don't... Uh, we we'll promise you that the lights are going to go out pretty soon. And the other thing I'll guarantee you is this. No, I'll say I won't guarantee you. We have no idea how we're going to feed you because we don't have any food. Everybody that was given that offer took it. <laughs> and uh, we had some people show up, I think, on the first day, and they showed up, and the guy had a knife on his belt that was about so long, looked like he was looking for trouble. And he was wanting, he said he was... He was hungry, he wanted something to eat, and he needed some gasoline. Well, all that we had to eat for him right then was donuts. And so we gave him what donuts we had left. And, uh, and he said, well, I need some gasoline. I said, well, sorry, partner. There's no electricity in town, and therefore, if there's no electricity, there ain't no gas being pumped. Well, I'm not, I need gasoline. Well, one of our deacons, kind-hearted fellow, Mike, said... Uh, I've got a two-gallon can of gasoline in the back of my truck. I'll be glad to give, it, give you that gas. Max started pouring it in there, and then the guy started griping, saying, I bet it's old gasoline. <laughs> you know, you just want to say, here, let me get that stain off of your neck, you know. But <laughs> anyway, they poured the gas in there. He went away, I don't know, a couple of years or so later. They showed up, and they wanted something. They came at 12 o'clock on Sunday right when the new church was letting out. And, and he, they wanted something, and I cannot remember now what it was, but it was, they were asking for something that we couldn't help them with. We couldn't do it. And as they drove away, they made obscene gestures to all of us that were standing outside. You just really wish that people wouldn't ruin your day or anything like that. Uh, another couple of years later, they came by again. This time they wanted food and gasoline, and we were able to help them out with that. They had no idea that they had ever been there before. 
And it didn't really bother me to give them food and gasoline. It didn't really make that much difference. I know they probably thought they were really just getting away with all kinds of stuff, but we knew who they were. But you know, you just deal with a lot of different people in life. Some people that are easy to love, some people, it's hard to love them. You know, Jesus was, as I said, he was on his last leg in his journey toward Jerusalem. And somebody had to ask him a question. And he's described, at least in the ESV and in the King James Version, as a lawyer. Now, what they meant by lawyer back then in Jewish society is not what we mean by lawyer today. You know, today when we talk about a lawyer, we might be talking about, you know, a good, honest attorney like Rusty Phoenix or something like that. Or Perry Mason, we might think of that. But a lawyer in Jewish society was an expert in the Jewish law. And, and I think that most of them started off as scribes who did, and scribes did, as far as our main job that they had, was that they would make copies by hand of the scripture. You know, you think of some of these old scrolls and stuff that you've seen. That stuff was all made by hand. And I'm going to tell you what, if you did that for enough years, you pretty much became an expert. Honestly, and I was telling the, the 830 group this morning, I had a professor in seminary, and he took his doctor's degree at Dropsy College, which is a Jewish school, and he said that there was one professor that he had that someone brought this fragment of a scroll in there that's about the size of a quarter or a half a dollar and showed it to him. And the professor looked at it and told him what book, what chapter, and what verse it came from. I mean, this was just, you know, the type of expertise that he had. And so whenever you had a lawyer back in, <clears throat> pardon me, back in the day of Jesus, these guys knew what they were talking about. They were sharp, sharp cookies. And, uh, and so this lawyer knew about the law. And so he decides that it's time for him to put this upstart rabbi from Galilee in his place. And he just said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, what great thing can I do that will cause God to give me eternal life? Jesus knew what the guy was doing. He was trying to set a trap for him. And Jesus did this. He said, well, how do you read the law? <laughs> As I've said before, don't argue with Jesus. It really never did any good. Well, this Jewish man, a lot of those Jewish men, they would wear this little phylactery and inside of it would be a copy of the law, the Ten Commandments and other things. One of them was this part that you, we read of in, in, in Deuteronomy. And so the man said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, that's right. You do that, you make that your lifestyle, you'll live. Well, then the lawyer thought, well, he made me look stupid. And so the lawyer said, okay, who is my neighbor? And so, a story begins. Jesus was a champion storyteller. And this was one of his better known stories. It's the one that we call the story of the Good Samaritan. Some people say that the, the story of the Good Samaritan was a thing that actually did happen. It's a story that could happen. You know, this was a thing, this was a scenario that was a possible scenario. But this was not a particular case that Jesus was bringing up. The reason we say it is this. And you, you pick up on this if you have a King James Version. It will start off, it says, a certain man. And that's just a formula that Luke uses in introducing his parables. 
a certain man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So Jesus was not saying this is a particular thing that happened and made it in the, made the headlines of the Jerusalem Chronicle. It was just saying, let's talk about a story. Let me tell you about something that could have happened because something like this could happen. He said, there was a man that was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was not a safe road to go on. He was going to be going downhill. It was a steep downhill. Jer Jerusalem, I think its elevation was like 2,500 feet. Uh, Jericho was uh, like a thousand feet or so below sea level. So he's going to be making a descent of about 3,500 feet. This is going to be like a day-long journey for him to make. It was a narrow, winding, twisting road, and it was well known as being a hangout for brigands and robbers and things like that. It was no surprise for Jesus to say a certain man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves. And these thieves just beat the pudding out of him. They took everything that he had on, they took everything that he had with him, and they left him on the side of the road for dead. And he just about was. But help was on its way. A priest was coming down the road. And it, of course, a priest would do something. You know, he's a man of God. He knows what the scripture says. He should help this person in distress. But he wouldn't do it. And some people say, well, you know, a priest would be afraid that someone might be dead. And if he was dead, he couldn't touch him because that would make him unclean and unfit to offer up sacrifices and offerings. He would be unclean for a day. And that doesn't make any difference what he was thinking. The fact is, is that he didn't do a stinking thing. And it said, not just that he didn't do anything, whenever he saw the body, what did he do? He didn't go over there to see if the guy looked like he was breathing. He gets on the other side of the road so he wouldn't even get close to him. And then a Levite comes. And a Levite was, well, he was not a priest, but he came from the same tribe because all the priests were from the tribe of Levi. And so this Levite was someone who helped out. He was a religious professional. And he comes and sees this battered body on the side of the road, and he does the same thing the priest does. He gets on the other side of the road and passes by. He isn't going to take his pulse. He isn't going to check to see if he breathes. He isn't going to do anything. He isn't even going to have the decency to put something over his half-naked body. And so then, someone else comes by. And it was a Samaritan. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say he was a good Samaritan. He just said he was a Samaritan. Here's the thing, and if, I think you realize this, but Jews hated Samaritans. I mean, absolutely loathed the ground that they walked on. And the Samaritans didn't have any kinder feelings toward the Jews. They just flat didn't like each other. The Jews considered Samaritans a bunch of half-breeds, and the Samaritans considered the Jews, I don't know, a bunch of snoots or something. Remember whenever Jesus stopped at a Samaritan city, outside of a Samaritan city, and sat down by the well, and a woman comes out to the well, and Jesus says, give me a drink of water? That was a shocking request. And she said, how is it that you, a Jewish man, would be asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? Because Jews and Samaritans don't have anything to do with each other. The idea of a good Samaritan was laughable back then. Because as far as Jews were concerned, there were two kinds of Samaritans and only two kinds of Samaritans. There were dead ones and there were bad ones. And that was all. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. But this Samaritan in Jesus' story stops. He doesn't go on the other side of the road. He goes over there and sees what's wrong with him and sees that he was beaten to a pulp. And so he takes out his, his jug of wine, and he bathes the wounds 
in order to clean the wounds. And then he puts oil on top of the wounds. And then he bandages up the wounds. And then he takes him and lifts him up and puts him upon his donkey and they go straight for an inn. This Samaritan stayed overnight because the next morning he comes in and tells the innkeeper he hands him two coins, two denarii. If you have a King James Version, I think it's two pence. A denarii, a denarius, okay, that's one denarius. If you have two, it's denarii. But one denarius would pay for about a week's stay at an inn back then. In other words, it would be this, his room and board. And so he gives him enough to cover for about two weeks. And he said, you take care of him while I'm gone. And whenever I come back, I will check. And if I owe you any more, I will pay, my, pay the bill off in full. Here's, that's the story that Jesus said. And then now he asked for a conclusion to it. And so he asked the man, okay, you ask who's your neighbor? Who was the neighbor in this story? And the lawyer said, well... He wasn't going to say the Samaritan. He was just going to say, well, I guess it was the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Now, there's so many lessons in here for us. And, and it's telling us in here to love like God loves. And one of them is to love without limitations. You know, we cannot like, be like the Jewish society was back then or the Samaritan society was. We cannot cut out a part of society and say, I don't really have to love them. You have to love, if we are a Christian and we are a follower of Jesus Christ, we will have to love people that are not like we are. We're going to love people. No matter, if you're a Democrat, you're going to love Republicans. If you're a Republican, you're going to love the Democrats. You're not going to say that you're not my brother because you don't, you don't agree with me politically. We're going to love people of different social levels. We're going to live, love people of different racial backgrounds. We're going to love people that are, have different religious backgrounds. In other words, we're going to love the Catholics and we're going to love the other Baptists. We're going to love the Presbyterians. We're going to love even the Islamic people and the Jewish people. Understand this, we're going to love, but it's not going to be based upon whether someone agrees with us or not. And that's something that's important for us to understand. Honestly, I have seen some people, and I'm sure you have too, that, I mean, church people, that, I mean, they get all ruffled up simply because somebody in the church does not agree with their politics. Have you ever thought that maybe all the politicians are wrong? <laughs> you know, I, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. The point is this, is we have to love those who are different. And we have to love those that don't love us. At one time, Jesus said this. He said, if you love only those who love you, what difference does it make? He said, even the crooks and the sinners do that much. We have to be different, and we have to go beyond. We have to love without limitations. It does not make any difference whether you like the way someone looks or you like the way someone thinks. I cannot make myself a good role model because I've not always done that. I'll admit it. I mean, there was a time several years back whenever I really had some problems tolerating people from the Middle East, you know. I mean, I just looked at them as they're our enemies, you know. And that was not right. 
and I realized it wasn't. And I found out that, you know, if I'm nice to them, they've usually been pretty nice to me, sometimes nicer than some Baptists have been. Back whenever I was in seminary and I, I worked for, uh, at a freight dock, there was one of the guys that I worked with, and he and I became really good friends. I mean, we were. I, I enjoyed his company, and he helped me out a lot. I would do whatever I could to help him. But he was everything but an atheist. I mean, but now he wanted to talk to me about religion. And a lot of times we'd get off work and we'd go outside and he would just pound me with questions and I would tell him whatever I knew. But we did not agree on that. We did not agree about God and we did not agree about religion things. But at the same time, we became friends. Now, if I can do that with one person that disagrees with me, why can't I do it with everybody that I meet? And we have to love like God loves. Understand this, God loves the world. He loves the just and he loves the unjust. He loves the good and he loves the evil. He loves those who, he loves those who love him and he loves those who even hate him. Understand this. The reason that he can love those who even hate him is because he is not profited if we love him and he is not made the less if we hate him. You see, our love does not earn us anything. If it did, that love, I mean, God's love doesn't earn us, well, love doesn't earn us anything. If it did, it wouldn't be love. Listen, God is someone also in his love. He loves us lavishly without any reservation. He never demonstrates his love foolishly. And he, which means that he is not always going to give people what they ask for. And this is an important point right here. Think about this. Moses didn't want to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He didn't want to be the one to do it, did he? Guess what? He had to do it. Elijah at one point in his life wanted to die. I mean, he'd gotten fed up with being a prophet and got fed up with ministry, and he ran off somewhere in the wilderness and laid down on the ground and told God, he said, you know, I'm no better than my father. Just let me die. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> Remember Jonah? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He had to, didn't he? And then after he got there, he wanted God to blow the place up. He wanted them all to die. God didn't get in his way, did he? Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and he asked the Lord three times to remove it. Did God remove it? No. Jesus didn't, didn't, didn't grant the request of John and James, who wanted to kill a bunch of people and call down fire out of heaven. Understand this. Because God loves us, he does not always give us what we ask for. Because God loves us, he's going to give us what is in our best interest. And, and what we may want is not always in our best interest. God wants us to be responsible. This means it's part of being created in the image of God is that we're going to be responsible. Therefore, God does not always prevent us from suffering dis discomfort or disappointments or toil or hardship or inconveniences. You know, sometimes you may be saying, well, I've prayed about such and such for, for you know, 30 or 40 years and God doesn't answer my prayer. Why hasn't God given me what I ask for? I have faith and I'm trusting Him, but He's not giving me what I'm asking for. Maybe it's because it's not in your best interest to get what you're asking for. You know, when we're trusting Him, we can say, not my will, but thine be done, simply because I know that your will is better than the things that I want. And if your will conflicts with what I want, I want your will more than anything else. You know, listen, if you have a little child, that child is not going to walk and do things well if you're always holding on to its hand and giving it everything that it wants. 
If you have a little child, that child may want to eat chocolate candy every day for every meal. It wouldn't be a good idea. If you love someone, you're, you're not going to be irresponsible with, with what you do. Therefore, when it comes to loving our neighbor, we have to realize we can love our neighbor without enabling them to do wrong. We can love our neighbor, even if we don't trust our neighbor. You know, love your neighbor, but keep your doors locked. We can love our neighbor without condoning their lifestyles or their ideas. Some, some of you may have heard this man's name. His name is Frank Pollard. Frank Pollard was a pastor, I think, out in Mississippi or Alabama at one time. Anyway, I, I knew him better as the pastor of the First Baptist Church in San Antonio years ago. He passed away several years back. But I, I went to a conference in which he was one of our speakers, and he was talking about this parable of the Good Samaritan. And Frank Pollard said at one point while he was the pastor there at First Baptist San Antonio, there was a lot of homosexual men began loitering around out on the edge of their property. They were staying on the sidewalk. They tried to get them to leave. They wouldn't do it. They went to the San Antonio Police Department and said, can't you get those people off of our sidewalk? And the police department said, well, we're sorry, but that sidewalk is public. And as long as they don't get, you know, get off the sidewalk, they're okay. And as long as they're not preventing people from coming to your church services. Well, that was not what the people wanted to hear. So the deacons had a meeting and they came up with a great idea. They went out there and they introduced themselves to some of those men. And this is what they said. We, they, they said, you know that we do not approve of your lifestyle, but we want you to know that we don't hate you. And really and truly, we love you. Every Wednesday night, we have supper here. And you're invited to come and eat with us. We'd be glad to have you as our guest. All that we ask is that you don't get alone with our children and, uh, and you don't propagate your, your idea of your lifestyle, but you're welcome to be with us. You can come to our Bible studies if you want to. And when they did that, they quit loitering around. <laughs> and some of them started coming on Wednesday night and getting a free meal. <laughs> And some of them came to know the Lord as their Savior. I don't think that would have happened through them if that church hadn't shown them some love. It's what we have to do. You know, we have to love because God loves. God is characterized by love, and there is no way that we can spread the gospel of His Son without reflecting the character of God. You can't tell someone you need to believe in Jesus whenever you hate their guts. We know that, you know, that uh, if we know God and we've accepted His forgiveness, how in the world can we then harbor grudges or hatred towards someone else? How can we claim to be unable to love those who are different from us if God's own Spirit has transformed our lives. The most basic command in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And if we do that, if we love God in such a way, we are going to love our neighbor. If we do not love our neighbor, we do not love God. That's what the Scripture says. Now, in this parable in which Jesus was telling him, go and do likewise, Jesus is not offering some alternate way of finding salvation. He isn't. And, and, God, and Jesus is not just suggesting that if you love God or you love your neighbor, what you're doing is you're, you know, 
doing some occasional virtuous act such as making a donation to a food pantry. Rather, what Jesus is stating is this, is that loving God and loving our neighbor is a lifestyle that we pursue. And when we love God, we want to obey Him and please Him. And when we want to obey Him, it's because we trust Him. Because we believe that He's true and we believe that He's trustworthy and we can believe what He says about putting our faith in His Son. And when we love God, we love our neighbor. Because our neighbor, whether he's a Democrat or Republican, or whether he's red, yellow, black, or white, or whatever, whatever he may be, whenever we love our neighbor, we love him because he's created in the image of the God we claim to trust. So, where do you stand on this? Can you do, can I do what Jesus tells us to do here? Go thou and do likewise. Let's pray together. Now our Father, please open our minds to your truth. And Lord, by the power of your Spirit, cause us to love those who are so difficult to love at times. To love those that we don't agree with. To love those who don't love us at all or even hate us. Give us that supernatural love that we can find only in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.